age cannot wither her, nor custom stale her infinite variety. Hey there, and welcome to Her Infinite Variety, the podcast that covers Shakespeare in New York City. I'm your host, Aaron Grunfeld. One thing almost everybody knows about Shakespeare is that he didn't work with women. In London 400 years ago, all the female roles were played by boys, and a woman didn't go on stage in one of Shakespeare's plays until almost 50 years after he died. To balance the scales, every episode of her infinite variety will talk to the women who were producing Shakespeare in New York City. Actors, directors, designers, critics, and academics who bring his plays to life for the 21st century. Today, in the third episode of Her Infinite Variety, I'm speaking with Mariah Aitken, a remarkable actor and director of comedy. In the 1970s, she was in the premiere of Tom Stoppard's Travesties in the London production of A Little Night Music. Under Harold Pinter's direction, she was in Blythe Spirit on the West End, and her career became defined by her turns in Noel Coward's plays. More recently, she directed The 39 Steps on West End and Broadway. But she's probably most famous for being part of the ensemble in A Fish Called Wanda. She played John Cleese's wife, and here's a clip of her with Kevin Kline. My father was in the Secret Service, Mr. Manfred Ginsinger, and I know perfectly well that you don't keep the general public informed when you are debriefing KGB defectors in a safe house. Oh, you don't, huh? Not unless you're congenitally insane or irretrievably stupid, no. This month, Mariah is directing Twelfth Night at Theatre for a new audience. It's a co-production between the Brooklyn Theatre, a troupe called The Acting Company, and, from Delaware, the resident ensemble players. Twelfth Night is one of Shakespeare's most popular plays, a combination of romantic confusion and caustic foolery. A young woman, Viola, disguises herself as her late brother and gets drawn into a love triangle with a local duke and a countess. I spoke with Mariah on the phone about her Twelfth Night, about acting across gender, and about playing comedy. We started by talking about Viola. I have a a very young Viola who is endowed mercifully with a kind of androgyny already. She's very luminous, and I've stripped her of added gesture and all the rest of it because she has an internal glow, which is very fascinating. Also, her comic instincts come from other eras, from this one and she's absolutely at her best when she's rather still and reflective and I believe in a very strong strand of melancholy in the play a lot of which comes from Viola so she's really the main purveyor of that I've also because I haven't messed with the play conceptually except that there is one thing that happens which gives the play to Viola really at the beginning which is that she washes up through a hole in a seawall at the start of the play from the shipwreck and she is revived we think by Festy who takes the sea captain's lines and at the end of the play when Festy is singing the wind and the rain she comes back in that same sliver of a dress with seaweed on it and climbs back out through the seawall so you don't really know whether this has been a flash rather like a drowning dream going before her eyes or what but it gives us leeway to have very free associative costumes and that sort of thing. Mariah's Viola is Susanna Stallman, a Minnesotan who got her start at the Guthrie Theatre. 
She has a, a pallor, this girl. She doesn't wear any makeup. She looks extraordinary, I think. She's very small and she's very young. But it's, so it's, it's boyish and touching. And, you know, this monumental task that she's been given by Orsino is a responsibility. She, neither, she doesn't want it, but she works very hard to execute it. So you can see this sort of struggle to conform to her employer's expectations while suffering herself because she's now fallen for her employer and of course she's grief-stricken like Olivia. Viola, as I mentioned, disguises herself as a boy to survive in Illyria, the setting of the play. She falls in love with her patron, the Duke Orsino, but can't bring herself to doff her disguise and reveal the truth to him. Here's a recording of Viola's big speech, delivered by Judy Dench. My father had a daughter, loved a man. As it might be, perhaps, were I a woman, I should your lordship. And what's her history? A blank, my lord. She never told her love. But let concealment like a worm i' the bud feed on her damask cheek. She pined in thought, and with a green and yellow melancholy, she sat like patience on a monument, smiling at grief. <sighs> Was not this love indeed? We men may say more, swear more, but indeed our shows are more than will, for still we prove much in our vows, but little in our love. But died thy sister of her love, my boy? I am all the daughters of my father's house. And all the brothers, too. And yet... Incidentally, that's Benedict Cumberbatch feeding Dame Judy her lines. Viola, disguised as Sarsario the Page, is the double of her twin brother, who also washes up on Illyria's shores, and that inevitably results in comic confusion. Mariah and I delved into the challenges of this twist, and into crossing genders in Shakespeare. Well, uh, uh, it strips her of a certain amount of femininity. Her trousers are quite tight and she has a sort of jerking. It's a nod to period and she has a, a little hat like a beret. So it's almost nun-like except that it's blue and it's male. So she has no adornment at all. And the great thing is that her Sebastian, who in life does not look very like her, has a wig exactly like her hair, which is very um, unusual in the theatre that you make the man change his hair and become like the girl but he's wearing a wig that matches her real hair and he wears the same clothes and they really are astonishingly similar and it makes a huge difference especially in the two uh, adjoining scenes where there's a very near miss she leaves the stage and he arrives on it and the audience is astonished it's like a conjuring trick I asked if she cross-cast any other characters in the play men in female roles or women in male roles no, I don't, because it's already seeded through with those confusions. I don't know that it would be helpful because of the Sebastian Viola thread. As it is, I hear people in Delaware explaining to each other that she's a girl dressed up as a boy. <laughs> so it's, I, I think I, I wouldn't probably do it in that. I might do it with an Antonio or something. I do it a lot when I teach, especially actually men playing women, simply because there are eras of a kind of femininity that we no longer practice. And men seem not to be afraid to essay that. In uh, Edwardian plays and Victorian plays, and also in perhaps Sheridan and so on, they're able to summon up behavioral stuff that rather embarrasses women now. 
I think maybe drag has released men into finding the most parodic feminine elements in characters. And in a way, the way we dress now, you know, women wear sneakers in rehearsal, those sort of things. I was teaching at, at Juilliard. I used to pin a, an extremely valuable jewel of my grandmother's on their backs. So that when they walked away, they knew they were absolutely thrilling and fascinating and expensive because girls didn't know how to carry their sexuality out of the room. I think when you release a man to play, I don't know, Gwendolyn in The Importance, he will go much further than a girl will, and then the girl will see the possibilities and sort of rein it back into something more believable. It's a useful exercise, as, as is the jewel. I still have the jewel. I was going to sell it, but it's been so handy <laughs> that I've kept it. I've played Olivia, I think, twice. I'm so old, I can barely remember what I have played. But I've certainly played Viola once and Olivia twice, I think. And I think we were much more reverent about social position and things than people are now. The Countess Olivia is one leg of the play's cross-gendered love triangle. She falls in love with the disguised Viola. I asked Mariah about her Olivia and how they approached the role. Well, we have a very interesting structure in this company, which is that it is actually two companies. The Delaware Rep, which is an existing company which has been together for 10 years, of more mature actors, and the acting company, which is traditionally younger ones. So Olivia is actually a little bit older, and that adds a very interesting dimension to the whole thing, too. She's caged in grief at the beginning of the play. She's also caged in age. But when Cesario comes along, all of this alters. And I do think that Mark Rylance did the world a great service with his Olivia because he sort of opened up certain possibilities that hadn't crossed people's minds, I think. Mark Rylance famously played Olivia about five or six years ago in an all-male Twelfth Night that played first at Shakespeare's Globe in London and later on Broadway. Here's a live recording of Rylance performing Olivia's first soliloquy. What is your parentage? (laughs) Above my fortunes, yet my state as well. I am a gentleman. I'll be sworn thou art. Thy tongue, thy face, thy limbs, actions, and spirit do give thee five-fold blaze. Not, not too fast, soft, soft. <laughs> unless, unless the master were the man, how now? Even so quickly may one catch the plague. Methinks me I feel this youth's perfections with an invisible and subtle stealth to creep in at mine eyes. Well... Let it be. In the play, part of what surprises Olivia about falling in love is that she, like Viola, is mourning a dead brother. This extremity of emotion from one to another informed Rylance's take on the role as Mariah described. He was not afraid to make her a sort of hysteric, really. The only thing is it doesn't quite tie up with Sebastian saying how brilliantly she runs her household and how deftly she does it when she spends such a lot of time overreacting to things. But it is terribly funny, and it releases her from the corsetry of her position with the endless services, one imagines. We have a kind of procession when we first see her coming back from a church somewhere holding a relic of the dead brother, 
a photograph of a young officer in uniform and the whole household is forced to participate. One feels daily, because it happens again a little bit later in a truncated form, in these processions and mornings and formal procedures. So to come out of all of that formality and to be able to grab a young man and kiss him is fantastic. And, and I don't think it was as overt as that before Mark released people. That production is one of the great Twelfth Nights I've ever seen, and I've seen about a dozen. So Mariah and I continued to discuss its influence as we considered how its male actor approached the role of Viola, a girl, playing a boy. The boy who played Viola was very interesting, actually, because because it was a boy playing Viola, so very obviously a boy, I thought it was quite difficult for him because he was actually doing a sort of homage to Elizabethan theatre at the same time as playing Viola. And as a result, I thought it stripped him of some of the qualities that he might have had. Also, he had the world's most difficult costume to deal with. Sort of white lead makeup and the hair and these awful kind of knickerbockers. He was a young man playing a younger man playing a girl. And it was a lot of layers. He was very, very good, but it didn't have the nuances that I think sometimes a female Viola can bring to it. Because when she says, if I were a woman, and so on, it just has such a glorious resonance. From there, we got onto the subject of all-male Shakespeare and all-female Shakespeare, and widened the conversation to other plays and other stagings. Mariah recalled a recent Chicago production of The Taming of the Shrew with an all-woman cast. Did you see that Chicago production fairly recently by Barbara Gaines, which was bookended with the idea that Chicago suffragettes were mounting a production? Well, it was extremely interesting. And although the bookending went too far, there was too much of it because it was practically another play, it did ratify a huge amount of this because, because they were banging a drum for something. You know, the girl playing Kate refused to say those words initially in their production and then agreed to say them. But uh, the one abiding thing that stuck with me was that Petruchio, who was an African-American actress, and I wish I could remember her name, but she was the best Petruchio I have ever, ever seen. And it was just so... I'd never seen an all-female production of any Shakespeare, actually. So it um, it was a revelation. That production, incidentally, was at the Chicago Shakespeare Theater in the fall of 2017. Its Petruchio was Crystal Lucas Perry. But we've wandered far from this podcast subject, so Mariah and I return to Twelfth Night in Brooklyn, specifically her view of the play's comedy. If anybody who's coming along for a jolly good laugh and a lot of slapstick is going to be disappointed, one of the most touted comedic scenes, you know, the gulling of Malvolio, is extremely difficult because of the structure of perfectly visible people hissing insults (laughs) about Malvolio while he reads the letter is intrinsically not that funny so you have to sort of lay on a few extra jokes to make that work and of course ours is funny but I don't enjoy that sort of comedy myself enormously I mean I know I do do things like 39 steps but I like verbal comedy best and there's plenty of that in the play Festy is relatively impenetrable to a modern audience unless you deconstruct it to the point where you're making it totally unfunny by serving it up laboriously. Those things are hard to handle. I find what ought to be funny in the play is funny, but I haven't made anything funnier than it already is, I don't think. Since she mentioned how hard it is to direct Shakespeare's clowns, I asked Mariah how she approached Feste's role in Twelfth Night. Festy, of course, is a fascinating sort of 
grey strand through the play. A remarkably unfunny fool in the sense that he's very dexterous with language, but his temperament is not that of a fool. He's also homeless. We stress that as he moves between the two places, and at the end of Act One, he unrolls a bedroll and sleeps on the bare ground, and you realize he's got nowhere to go. So his predicament is very much part of the play. By making him take the lines of the man who initially saves Viola and helps her to turn into a boy, to dress up as a boy, he therefore knows all the way through the play that she is a girl. He's the only person privy to the secret. And this adds a very interesting dimension. Repeatedly during our conversation, Mariah said that she'd explored a grey element in Twelfth Night, a bittersweet quality in what may be Shakespeare's most popular comedy. She listed a few other facets of the play that allowed her to bring out the play's shadows. To begin with, Olivia's mourning is something. Toby's drunkenness is not that hilarious. What is charming is that Mariah and he have a relationship. I think we would dislike Sir Toby if he didn't have that relationship with Mariah because, you know, he gets so carried away with the Malvolio plot that he becomes malevolent. And he only gets Malvolio out of that jail because he's worried that he's going to get into trouble himself. He'd really like to keep him in there. Malvolio, of course, is a major social irritant to anyone below him in the pecking order. He doesn't do anything so terribly wrong, and he, boy, does he get punished for it. And when he emerges from his prison, it shuts the audience up. It happens at a big laugh. He appears when Olivia says, most wonderful at the thought of there being two Cesario and Sebastian. So there's an ecstatic squawk from Olivia, and then this creature with excrement on his shirt arrives. I don't want to tell you anymore, really. I, tell you, I must tell you, though, the set is very unusual. It's a sort of Baltic square, vaguely Le Corbusier-like, vaguely, vaguely, and moss growing up through the cracks of the paving stones. And at the back of it is a long, high wall with a huge cut-out piece through which you see the sea and islands. And we have uh, the aurora borealis at the beginning, and the sort of plants that grow on the roofs are, are not tropical. And it's slightly unwelcoming kind of place. I think of it from Viola's point of view. And the, the only thing that really goes for her in Illyria, I, I don't think Valentine and Curio are very nice to her. She gets assailed by Andrew Hegucic. She's permanently on the run from Olivia, really. And it's her love for Orsino as she executes her duty. And I think from Viola's point of view, she might have washed up somewhere better. As we wrapped up, I asked Mariah about her past performances in Shakespeare and whether she wanted to direct any of his other plays in the future, or, since she's retired from stage work, maybe she'd do a review of classic speeches and scenes, the way we heard Judy Dench doing earlier in this episode. Well, I probably wouldn't do any Shakespeare. I might do Rosalind. I might do some Rosalind. But I didn't perform a huge amount of Shakespeare. I, was, I really did, you know, Coward and Sheridan and Restoration and Acheborn. And I mostly was funny. Whenever I wasn't funny, I used to get put up for an award because people would think it was like a kind of dancing bear <laughs> that I could do something that wasn't funny. But actually being funny is the hardest thing of all, I think. The great thing I think everybody realizes is that when you're the right age to do it, you're the wrong age to fully understand it. And then, of course, you're too old to do it when you do understand it. I remember going to see uh, Dame Edith Evans, a great, great British actress, when she was incredibly old, doing a sort of recital with two very camp gentlemen at the piano of her greatest hits, as it were. And she did Juliet, 
she must have been about 85. She did Juliet, she did Rosalind, and there was a rather well-known actress sitting behind me, and she tapped me on the shoulder, and she said, what have you come for? What have you come for? I've come for dwindle, which is what Millamant says in The Way of the World. I may, by degrees, dwindle into a wife. <laughs> we all got what we'd come for. And we could see behind the eyeballs of this old lady, you could see Juliet, you could see Rosalind, you could see Millamant. It was actually rather thrilling, even though it was slightly grotesque. On that note, let's take Mariah's advice and listen to Dame Edith Evans as Millicent. This clip is from The Way of the World, written about a century after Shakespeare, and frankly, a funnier play than some of his minor comedies like All's Well at Ends Well. In this speech, Millicent is explaining to her beau her forward-looking ideas about marital equality and female independence. Let us be as strange as if we had been married a great while, and as well-bred as if we were not married at all. Have you any more conditions to offer? Hitherto your demands are pretty reasonable. Trifle. As liberty to pay and receive visits to and from whom I please. To write and receive letters without interrogatories or wry faces on your part. To wear what I please. And to choose conversation with regard only to my own taste. To have no obligation upon me to converse with wits that I don't like because they are your acquaintance. Or to be intimate with fools because they may be your relations. Come to dinner when I please. Dine in my dressing room when I'm out of humor without giving a reason. To have my closet environment. To be sole empress of my tea table, which you must never presume to approach without first asking leave. And lastly, wherever I am, you shall always knock at the door before you come in. These articles subscribe. If I continue to endure you a little longer, I may, by degrees, dwindle into a wife. Thanks very much to Mariah Aitken for speaking with me. Mariah's Twelfth Night played at the Polanski Shakespeare Center, the home of Theatre for a New Audience, in May 2018. We heard a few clips this episode. We heard Judy Dench reading Viola, and in a rare male performance on her Infinite Variety, Mark Rylance performing Olivia. Edith Evans delivered her Millicent from Cotton Greaves' The Way of the World, with a line or two from John Gielgud. The theme music for her Infinite Variety is Da Do Ron Ron by The Crystals, and this episode's curtain music is You Don't Have to Say You Love Me by the inestimable Dusty Springfield. I appreciate your listening to Her Infinite Variety. The podcast is a new medium for me, and I'm eager to hear from listeners. You can email me at herinfinitevariety2018 at gmail.com. Her Infinite Variety will be on hiatus for two weeks around Memorial Day while I refine the show's technical side and prepare for the summer season of Shakespeare. I'm Aaron Grunfeld, and this has been Her Infinite Variety. Thank you for listening.